Hey, this is BT Wolf and you're listening to Orange Juice for the Years on Dublab. And today it's an immense pleasure to be joined by L. Frank, a Tongva, a Hashman artist, activist, tribal scholar, elder, writer, and one of the most remarkable people I've met in a millennia. L. Frank's artwork, including paintings, sculpture, weavings, photography, cartoons, has been featured in leading galleries and museums worldwide. And as an active culture keeper, L. is the co-founder of Advocates for Indigenous California Language Survival and serves on the board of the Cultural Conservancy. For L. Frank, who's dedicated her life to the revival, representation and visibility of indigenous art practices and languages originating from the Los Angeles basin, art is a mirror that reflects a living culture through which a community can recognize itself. Because for L, art is so much more than an indulgence. It's a responsibility. L, it's so wonderful to have you here with us today. Thank you very much. And where are you joining us from? Where are you right now? I'm located in Santa Rosa, California. It's about an hour's drive north of San Francisco. And have you been there for many years? I've been here for so long that I'm no longer freaked out that the Golden Gate Bridge is south of me. (laughs) Yeah, I've been here for um, close to 30 years now. And I moved here because of the um, political environment that the indigenous people, you know, were creating up here ever since the 60s. Is there anything you miss about south of the Golden Gate Bridge? I miss everything south. I still, even though I'm okay as to where the bridge is located, I'm too far from my homeland. Well, I was lucky enough to meet you down here pretty recently. I think it was only Mm. a few weeks ago. Um, Mm. Even though time is such a bizarre experience. And that was for this wonderful Sister Carita Kent event that Dublab was putting on with the Carita Foundation and the Great Discontent uh, magazine. And you and I were speaking on this panel after a, a documentary by Aaron Rose about her work. Um, and yeah, and it, but it felt, as soon as I met you, it felt like I'd known you forever it seemed uh, yes and then at me also and then when I, I heard you speaking it's why I wasn't kidding when I'd say yeah what you said because uh, you express things that you know that's the way that I feel and it's nice when it's not you know uh, there's an older person expressing there's a younger no there's just a, a constant flow of creativity you know ideas and yeah and beliefs so I enjoyed that that's the part I enjoyed I mean there's a lot to enjoy that evening even though I was in a room full of Catholics. <laughs> Are you sure about that? Yeah, I am. I am very sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, not me. <laughs> um, so please tell us more about your specific tribal background, because I sure as hell didn't cover it in my intro. Well, let's see. I could do a, I could do a small intro and go off on that. It's um, Netwanyane El Frank. Nonne Tongvet Kukamovet Birara Muripia Hashmem Nonne Hollywood Nai Atahum. So uh, I just said, my name's El Frank and I'm a Hollywood Indian. My tribe is uh, the Tonga tribe. We are predominantly in the LA basin and out to the uh, Channel Islands that are uh, Pimugna, which is our Pimu, which is Catalina Island. Island of the Blue Dolphins is in our sphere. And that's actually the center of our universe, but it's also shared by the Ahashmem and Luiseno peoples 
um, because who keeps it sacred to themselves, who are a little bit south in San Juan Capistrano on Mahashram. I'm also Rara Muri from the Sierra Madres of Mexico. We're the guys that everybody, you know, tries on our huarachis and tries to run barefoot and then they get leg cramps because, you know, they weren't born to do it. But um, we're the runners up in the mountains. And when were you first aware of those different tribal aspects to yourself? Oh, well, I never had a name. All I had was before I was born, I traveled the world with another native and we chose where we were going to live. So we checked things out. And then when I was in utero, I could hear the voices of my ancestors. And when I was a little kid and I'd run and lay on these fields where it turns out there were 600 of my people buried, 400 of them women, uh, they used to talk to me. So I never knew, I never knew a name, but I knew who I was always. And now because of, you know, genocide, everyone expects me to have paperwork to prove who I am. And my father said, we know who we are. We don't need that paper. Well, it stops you from a lot of things in this world, but we do know who we are. And we called ourselves by our village names and family names. So as long as I know those sort of those things, I know who I am. But uh, it was never a specific name for the longest time until I was uh, near 22 or 3 when I got the Tongva Nahashman tribal names. Mm. And we're going to talk more about what you shared because it's pretty incredible. It is incredible. But first, you know, the name of this show, it's called Orange Juice for the Years. It's taken from a line by Oliver Sacks, neurologist Oliver Sacks, about the power of music and how deep that really goes. And the line is, music can lift us out of a depression or move us to tears It's a remedy, a tonic, an orange juice for the ear. And I just want to know, Elle, what does that mean to you? Well, we've just discovered that a glass of orange juice is uh, pretty bad for your sugar levels. It's actually quite real. All of that is really true. All of the arts do this in their own ways. You know, each medium is different and each medium is heard and seen differently. But music does exactly that. And there's not a time in history where music isn't mentioned right at the very beginning of any peoples. People say I study white people. What I really like is how the history of music in the United States, outside of the blacks creating quite a bit of what everyone listens to, a lot of songs started out as work songs in Ireland and England. And I like those songs and the whaling songs, you know, that then changed as they came across America from the East Coast. So I really like how music has allowed people to work, allowed people to be happy, and music holds them when they're sad, as the quote you said. So I agree, yeah. On a personal level, do you use it as a tonic for yourself? I guess a tonic. I guess I use it more as a mood enhancer. Quite often, different music for different situations. If I'm into quick thinking, then it's just the radio on, you know, in the bathroom while I brush my teeth. And if I don't have the radio, my thinking isn't, you know, as snappy. But then if I'm really doing something, you know, something entirely different, then it's an entirely different piece of music that I'll actually sit and listen to beforehand or as I'm doing. I like music with calligraphy. I guess I wrap everything around art. Mm. You know, people ask me when I relax, and I'm not sure that I do. Because, you know, if your eyes are open, even if your eyes are shut, you're still thinking of things <laughs> that you could do, you know. And so um, Absolutely. I often think of the sounds that would wrap around those things. When you've got the thinking mind and then you've mm. got the other aspects, which isn't really thinking. 
thinking and it's not really the mind, but it's what mm. we can do as receivers, creative receivers. So as you said, your eyes can be closed, but you can still be picking up on a lot of stuff, you know? Yeah. And so the different music is different triggers. When I was at Immaculate Heart, speaking of Immaculate Heart, Sister Karina Kent, there was a clamor for a class. And so they created it. It's called a Psychology of the Creative Process. Where in that class, I found out I was the only one in the whole class of 10 people who did not have sex dreams. But aside <laughs> from that, I really got to explore my creative process and uh, how music played a role in that. Music, visual aids, you know, like screens and, and sounds, how all of that enhanced or detracted from. And what else is a tonic in your life? What else is something that really restores you? Oh, well... I put on headphones and join a, a virtual reality village where I slay dragons that fly at me and breathe fire and, you know, shoot orcs. And it's really pretty soothing to kill things. I also like curling online, you know, that kind of that Scottish game of curling. Yeah. Curling, I think, and shooting pool are the things. Okay. But when I'm curling and shooting pool, I usually not playing music, but I hear music from those those things mm. uh, they make their own even though you know i have the volume turned off or if i'm in a pool hall no one else is hearing the same music but it's the i think it's the geometry because well a million years ago when i was a foolish kid in the 60s we ate acid and the sound came out of the speakers and it's later proven that people actually do see the shapes of sounds and there i was seeing the shapes of the sounds and so when i'm shooting pool while i'm not seeing those shapes i am understanding the geometry of sound you know, and it matches in my mind the geometry of shooting pool and or curling. Curling's a little more soft because you've got curves and, you know, well, you can curve a pool ball too. But the pool table, I see it in a series of diamonds and ever smaller and music fits into them. I think we pick up on so little of what's actually out there, like our, our sensory perceptions are so limited and so reduced part of being a human being <laughs> so most of us live where there's a lot of noise and so we just take a lot for granted mm. it's kind of like when when sister had you look through the little hole in the car to see the world we need to listen that way also focused well on that perfect note what was the first song that imprinted on you boy you know your list was very very tough because well it just was there was so there were so many and they just thrilled me to no end but i wrote night of the fun yeah because my stepfather would play uh he's german and he would play um yeah mostly classical music and i remember that i thought with this sound i could see spring and the light, the way that it hits things. The music turned all into visual things for me that were really pretty. It's funny, when I go into nature, sometimes I hear the music as if it's playing somewhere, you know, <laughs> because of that, that's so much of an impression. Well, as a kid, I was kind of afraid of nature, so the music was very helpful. Well, with that beautiful picture in mind, we're now going to take a listen to Prelude to the Afternoon of a Fawn by Claude Debussy.
And that was Prelude to the Afternoon of a Fawn by Claude Debussy. And that was the music that L. Frank chose as the first piece of music that really imprinted on her. And you were saying that you'd then go out into nature, which you were afraid of. And it was almost like a soundtrack for that. Absolutely. And yeah, I, I got the time wrong. Whenever time the fawn came out, I like that one. Maybe it's just because I'm a Hollywood Indian, but it gave me like Mel Brooks, he would have soundtrack, but it was really a busload of musicians playing music. That's what I hear when I'm out there. I hear classical. And how old were you when you first heard that, do you think? Oh, I think I was probably three, three and a half, something like that. I had already been reading at three and a half. So, you know, I went over and checked out the album. Apparently, I forgot the title, but I checked out the album. Did it make you feel calm and intrigued by, you know, what you were hearing? Yeah, not calm, but intrigued. And soon after that, when I was a kid, if you bought a certain amount of groceries at the market, they gave you a little encyclopedia, you know, all A to Z. And so I got an encyclopedia and it had an orchestra in it and it fully laid out all the positions and all the instruments so I had something to relate to so I would listen to the music and look at where everyone was seated. Wow Mm -hmm. so you had that real picture in your mind. Oh yeah you know because I liked a particular sound they told me it was an oboe it's like well I gotta know what an oboe looks like. So you were born in what Google Maps would call Santa Monica. I was. Tell us more about you know, those early years and what home life was like? <laughs> well, it was pretty much hell, <laughs> but uh, I didn't really have time or the uh, the mood for that. <laughs> it was kind of awful because uh, here I was born native in my family, which are native, they're Raramuri, but they don't really care for Indians. And I have seven half German Scottish siblings so nobody in my family appreciated when I would talk about seeing my ancestors or hearing my voices, the voices that I heard, except for my grandfather, but then he passed when I was 13. Thank goodness for him because he basically, I mean, it's much more involved and he never knew, used the word, but he basically introduced me to animism and talked to me about the beginning of the world and all of these things that I was experiencing, you know, these spiritual things that nobody else had time for. They were too busy trying to be Caucasian, you know, to fit into the world. But that was never my attempt because, again, I I knew who I was. So it wasn't very savory and it was an unusual household in that we had people who had escaped from communist countries and just people from all over the world were perpetually in our house. Our house was always open and flooded with different groups of people and we were always being chased by the government and um, I could never go to one school long enough to feel comfortable. So we moved to where there were really rich white people and they would kind of torture me because I was, they thought I was the maid's daughter or the, you know, the gardener's daughter. And all of these things happened very interesting to me, uh, you know, in my own homelands, you know, the schools and where I lived, it was where all my people were. So I always felt like I had a team on my side that nobody knew about. You know, while I had a tormented life and I had to run away to stay in school because my stepfather was made honorary chairman of the American Nazi Party and they wanted to move me to Lubbock, Texas. Nothing against Lubbock, Texas, but I don't want to move there. You know, I was 15. It was the 60s. So, you know, that was totally anti. But then, you know, the good parts were it was the 60s and they did try to control me. But, you know, I didn't like war and brown people being killed or anyone being killed. I don't care what color, you know, for goods and products and, uh, you know, colonization. So I did a lot of anti-war stuff. Mostly after that, I just 
went to a lot of junior colleges because they have a lot of art equipment and it's cost almost nothing to go to those schools. Well, and I want to ask more about that, but that time which you've given us ah. such a, a sense of and, you know, your alienation in a way from your family, apart from your grandfather, who was this one figure you could connect with. What were you like as a kid? Like, how we, how would you be spending your time well, it's not a wonder all the kids would beat me up. Um, I was way too small for my age, and I am autistic dyslexic and all, so that came into being, and I was severely abused in just about any way you can imagine. So I was rather quiet and stuttered, so they stuck me into singing to stop that. So I was pretty quiet, and I ran with the neighborhood kids, and at that time, the gangs were far less lethal than they are now. So I attribute me being able to throw rocks to fend off whole gangs to becoming a great center fielder because I was a really good center fielder. But, you know, I got practiced by throwing rocks at people <laughs> to keep them from beating me up with sticks. You know? Oh, L. Yeah, so I was um, not athletic, but I could throw something at somebody's eye, you know, and which later on I became this sort of jock artist. But um, I attribute it to to then. But I was actually um, very quiet and wanted to be unnoticed because, you know, my ideas, you know, were deemed um, useless or worse than useless. But for my own self, the kid who I was, was I would make sure when I lived with my grandparents, I was allowed to do this, but I would read a book a day before I'd go out and play. And nobody made me do that. I just wanted to. And, you know, by the time I was like five or six, I'd read Shakespeare. So reading was really who I was. That's amazing. That's uh, incredible. And so your grandparents, they were in a separate house that you would go to and you'd stay with them? Off and on, yes, exactly. Were they nearby? Was it close? Not always. They were not always close by, depending on who was angry with me when or what or where they'd send me off to. I always, you know, would end up with my grandmother. She she pretty much raised me. She wanted me to be a Spanish princess. And one day she gives up and says, you're nothing but an Amazon Indian. <laughs> So I was so happy. That's way, yeah. Take that any day. <laughs> I was so happy. Thank you. <laughs> and you mentioned being dyslexic and autistic. And uh -huh. uh, when did you discover that, um, you know, you learned and communicated differently? Well, I knew that because nothing was working with anyone. <laughs> so I realized that it must be me, but I had nobody really labeled that. So what they did was they would stick me in classes for the retarded kids as far as anything mathematical, telling time, anything. But then they'd have to stick me up three, four, five years ahead in the reading. So I totally confused the school system. <laughs> but the reason, you know, it's okay is because I could read. I feel anytime you can read, you're ahead of the game. Mm. Yeah. So, no, it, it wasn't an easy jog. Tell us a bit more about lying on that burial site as a child, uh, where you said you felt and you heard 16 mm -hmm. of your tribe, 400 women. You first heard your language. How old were you? And just tell us about that experience, because, wow, what an amazing experience. Well, I'd heard the language in utero. I didn't when I was traveling pre-world, but I heard it in utero, which is funny because nobody in my house was speaking it, but I could hear it. And so by the time I was about four, I was adventuring out on myself, you know, again, different times. And I only had to go down about a mile. And there was the, now there are condominiums. It's right below uh, where the Los Angeles airport is. Actually, it's right below Loyola Marymount. It used to just be Loyola when I was a child. So Loyola Marymount University, there are tennis courts, and that's mostly where I would lay. It was field then. And I would go there. I don't know what brought me there. I always tell myself they brought me there. Why else would I travel that distance at that age? And I'd travel there, 
and I would go to any place that called to me and it was them calling to me and I'd lay down and I just lay there and they would talk to me. They would talk to each other. They would ignore me, but know that I was there. It was a really safe and wonderful place. Mm. And what were some of the things they would say? Well, they just talked about daily life, about eating and cooking, and they wondered about the shape of my hair or something one time, you know, this just um, as if groups of women are seated around talking and children are just walking through. Well, and I imagine that was something you could not really share with your family. Uh, no, I stopped doing that, except for my grandfather. And I could actually see traces of people. So I stopped telling people because I realized that they didn't care, but they didn't appreciate, you know, that not that I could see and hear, but that those were there to be seen and heard. But all I'd say in a way is as much as you were alone, in a sense, in your home life, it must mm. have felt quite incredible having that bigger energetic support system. Absolutely. I mean, I tell you, my life was really, really, really pretty bad. But I always was kind of happy because I figured that's not real and that is sad and that is sick. You know, that this is where I belong. You know, when you're teenagers, all the teenagers are like, who am I? What am I? I never went through any of that angst because I knew who I was. I know why I'm here and it's all good. What was the first piece of art you made, if you remember? Well, I don't remember the first piece I made. But I do remember my first two art memories because they were pure art memories. One, I was two and a half. And I remember that my little baby finger, I could see my baby finger in my brain here. It's my little baby <laughs> finger, there's three teeny, like the size of peas, balls, and they're on a little wire. And my baby finger is flicking at them. So they roll on this bar. They're all the same, except they're different colors. My baby brain didn't know colors then, but they were different. And I remember how beautiful they were, how the engineering of how they turned on that little silver bar and how pretty they looked when they spun. And then all of a sudden, within my eye shot, rolls in front of me on the ground, a ball. But it's so big. It's so much bigger that, you know, when babies get excited, they shoot their little arms and legs out. <laughs> I really remember shooting my little legs and arms out going, what the hell is that? You know, and baby, whatever. And then another one, but each one that rolled, there were three that rolled into my line of vision. They were the same color as each of the balls I was playing with. And this is actually my first waking memory at two and a half is everyone started laughing and I looked up from the balls and that's when I saw the adults were out playing miniature golf and they realized that I was playing with the little balls that were on the baby tray on my stroller. So my stepfather rolled golf balls into vision. So that's my very first, bam, I like color. I like the way things fit. I like when things move, you know, and I was totally into that. And then the other was I was almost five years old. And this one is, people think it's gruesome, but uh, it's not the part that I came away with. Uh, my father broke in to try and stab my very pregnant mother because another man's baby, you know, all this drama. And while he's trying to stab her with his tool, she deflects and you know, there's an awful crunch and I see something fly through the air and I, as it lands, I realize that it's a finger. Oh my God. And so a piece of a finger. And so havoc is going on all around me. Now they're really duking it out, but I'm really interested in this finger. First thought is, why is there a finger with no hand? But then the second thought was, because it's a wooden floor with a little, you know, two, three inch wide strips of wood. I look down and I'm thinking, but look how spatially it fits so neatly between these <laughs> pieces of wood. 
you know, and then I started thinking how many it would take to fill the space. And, you know, and it was this really big art moment. Well, adults are having this horrific, you know, knockdown, drag out, call the police, call the ambulance. And I'm sitting here thinking about how things fit in between each other. And, wow. You know, I mean, okay, so first of all, <laughs> you made me see golf in a whole new way, that's for sure. Right, right. Um, but also, like, amazing that in a scenario like that, yes, the artistic aspect of you seeing the spatial environment uh-huh. and aspect of this uh-huh. finger in this environment, but also, <laughs> in a way, it also shows that you had that detachment from reality on some level that mm-hmm. you kind of knew that it is this play, it is this thing that we're mm-hmm. going through and to not be completely absorbed by it, it sounds like. Yeah, and to not be so wounded that my whole life revolves around it. And I think that's just for my ancestors. I don't want to call it luck, but I am lucky. It's a hard thing for humans to achieve, you know, without losing other parts of themselves, you know, the caring for humanity or the trust and all that. Well, and that the situation you described is about as heavy as it gets you know so (laughs) my god my god and here's this dorky kid thinking about art (laughs) (laughs) all right so then I made art but it was like line drawings that I would use and it was more like optic art that ended up yeah I didn't start painting and drawing until much later I made a lot of art you know like I, I learned a lot of art techniques Like I learned that I really like turning a piece of paper into a stage with stairs and chairs and, you know, walls and curtains. I learned that I like to weld and learning all these different things. And then I started making pieces. Would you say that your first medium as a kid or as you were growing up was photography? Yes, that's a given. I don't know why I forgot it. Yeah, when I was about eight and a half, my stepfather started letting me use his Leica with the Zeiss lens, you know, his old Leica and rangefinder. And I fell in love because that became my voice. I didn't speak much so that the photographs became my voice. And then the following year, they realized they really was sticking with this. So they, at Christmas, gave me, I opened it up and it's a pink hawkeye brownie. And um, I kind of cried because me and pink are not friends. You know, it wasn't a Leica. It was a pink hawkeye brownie. And then I shut up because I realized that it was my eye, not the pink, not the brownie it's still you that knows when to push that button so I shut up and was okay (laughs) so that almost became a way for you to speak you know through your Mm -hmm. photographs and when did you first go by L and tell us the story behind that <laughs> I don't, okay i don't know if i can, uh, i'm trying to clean it up in, in my head so um you don't need to clean it up l oh okay well the l is because early on talking with my grandfather he talked about that there were bad doctors and good doctors doctors with you know bad intent and that's how they acquire power it's kind of like the dark force you know so he said you shouldn't let people have your first name because that's a big part of of power that people use. So I just go to the L and they can use whatever name they think and they never guess it because it's a a more unusual name than not. And then the the Frank part, (laughs) I was living in Ventura. I had my first partner and there were other people who lived with us and a lot of them were outcasts because they were all um, two-spirit or queer or whatever, you know, the terminology is now. And so we created a family. And there used to be the fabulous furry freak brothers in the 60s. They were three 
brothers who ran around smoking pot. I think it's pot will get you through times of no money better than times of no money will get you through times of no pot or something like that. You know, some ridiculous 60s thing. So we became the fuck family. And uh, I have no idea who came up with that name. They weren't as clever as they think they were, but that's what the name was. So we all had names. I had another name that started with an L, but I opposed that name because in the foggy weather, the front of my hair kind of springs up like Alyssa Manchester in the Bride of Frankenstein movie. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so my partner would go, look at your little Franks. And so then it became Al Frank. Oh, nice. Yeah. And then I get invited to art shows where there are only men invited because it's Al Frank. Or I, I have a coaching certificate because the coaching clinic only invited men, but Al Frank they invited. So if you want to get anywhere in life these days, you just got to like be a dude. Hey, it's one of the <laughs> one of the first things I said to my mom and I've shared, you and I have had out there conversations. I asked her if she could turn me into a boy and she said uh-huh. no. And then I said, well, then can you turn me into a frog? I mean, I was like like a year and a half, like when I was first talking properly. And that was my that was my first request. And I was so confused that she couldn't do it. And I knew that it would be easier either being a boy or a frog. So <laughs> Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. I, I hear you. I like that. I like, yeah, the L Frank. Well, and that's also like not to get too deep into it now because there's so much to talk about, but that's also what the two spirit ethos sensibility is about, really, isn't it? That we possess both. Exactly. Yeah. Everybody does. We're not saying that you have to, you know, if you're a boy, you have to kiss a boy, but you do have this. Otherwise, you're not a complete person. Yeah. And the Lakota have the four circles and the different colors the red, black, yellow, and white. But those, divisions also add up to man, woman, child, elder, so that, you know, that's the complete person. Mm, I like that. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, we've got very disconnected in this day and age. When did you first get a sense of what you were here to do? And was it through those conversations at the burial site? Yes, and before when I decided to be where I was going to be, because the mandate from Creator for most Indigenous peoples is to care for the place where you live, not where you travel to and live, but the place creator gave for your specific people with your specific languages, your specific ceremonies to care for this piece of the earth. Mm. And so I did a lot of art, but it wasn't until I was a artist in residence at the Headlands in San Francisco. I was going to make the first stone bowl in a couple hundred years, which I did do, but I had it in a car. It was in a square shape in a car behind me, driving me to the retreat. And then that car behind me with the stone ran into me. It ran into the car I was in. So for three or four days, I wasn't in any shape to go working on stone, but I would still get in the car and drive down to the studio with the Haida Gwaii Indians. But each morning I would stop at this spot right by the uh, our rooms there at the Headlands. And there's a cove there. Once I saw the moon and it was sitting in that cove. So I'd stop there every morning just at dawn. And I started realizing and knowing everybody who lived there. The deer lived over here and the foxes lived over there. And the frogs lived over there with the boys. You know, these birds lived over there. And I realized that as they all got up and did stuff. And this is all obvious. I'm a very slow learner, but I knew that. Um, I realized that everybody knows its place and just gets up and does it. And my place is to make art. I must get up and do it. And so that's when everything changed for me, when all the other 
people said, we get up every day and quack, what are you doing? When did you first become aware of the invisibility of the erasure of your history and ancestry and culture? I became aware briefly and then I let it go when I would tell people about the voices and the people and nobody knew about them. Nobody wanted to hear about them. It was nothing. And then when I actually found the name of my tribe, because of that, you know, finger flying incident, <laughs> I didn't get to meet my father, which turns out my family lived, my Indian family, other Indian family lived about four or five miles away at the most. And they all called themselves Indians, you know, so that's where I really needed to be, but wasn't. So I didn't learn the name of that until I was 21, which tribe I was. And here were my cousins live right across town. And my other cousin from my mother's side, that's my dad's side that I'm talking about, my mother's side cousin, she would play with me. And then she'd go over and play with my other cousins, not knowing that we were related. She did that for a long time. Yeah. And wasn't your father actually part of Hollywood? Wasn't he in the movies? Well, all of us California Indians basically were. My great grandfather was in over 200 movies. Wow. Because Hollywood is in our homelands. That's why at my introduction I said, Hollywood, Hollywood, it's a Hollywood Indian. Mm. Because we were first, I'm not going to say employed because it's not like they paid us. We were enslaved in the missions and the ranches so we could ride horses. We were really, really good at riding horses. So when Hollywood became a movie making place, you know, Culver City and Burbank and all those places, we were the riders. My great grandfather was tall and light skinned, which is why the Spaniard says we were smarter than all the other Indians around us. So my great grandfather, he uh, most often played a white cowboy, but most of us played uh, cowboys and Indians in the movies when they would make about three a week, you know. So he was in Captain Blood with Errol Flynn. I think he might have been in Stagecoach. I'm not sure because they didn't keep track of the people of color, only the, the white actors. And did you feel like finding your art or not even finding your art, but your art coming through you could be an antidote and a tool to really challenge the invisibility that you were seeing. Oh, I say that right out. I would make all kinds of media because I really like working with everything anyway, but art is a way for people to see us as not extinct mm. because it's very harmful for a kid to hear that they're extinct, you know, and it's very harmful for them to go through life with nothing that represents them in their own homelands. It's crazy. That's the primary reason why I've had shows. It's not like I did anything to get them. People go, you need to have a show. And then they give me a show. It's like, all right. But I would tell people one of the first times I was interviewed, if you read the article, I'm totally ignorant about what I'm talking about. And I knew it when I was giving the interview and I told them I'm ignorant about what I'm talking about, but I want my tribe to see their name in print because that's how people become real in this world. That's so true and so wonderful that you were doing that and you are doing that. Just in my humble opinion, I think it's complete lunacy that we can treat such rich history and ancestry and culture, which is, you know, so deep and so long lasting and timeless as the opposite, mm. you know, when we are living in this little mini bubble of time that we think is all defining and it's the absolute opposite of that um well are all these other people who could call them our guests are they praying the way that creator said to pray to protect this place you know yeah we are we still are 
even though our vocabulary, the Tongva vocabulary is minuscule. You know, it's not easy to learn this language. I had to create, I created a language program so we could learn. And it's now going across the planet so that we can learn our languages. So that once we get a little bit of linguistics help, you know, we can do for ourselves. Tired of waiting for people to help us. Of course, you're not going to help us. They're too busy (laughs) doing other things. Too busy fucking up the planet. Yeah. Instead of taking care of the people who actually can help take care of the planet. Yeah. Yeah. Elle, what was the first record that really shaped who you are and had a major impact? Yeah, that was the Beatles. (laughs) That was the Beatles. It was 1960, just about 64. I guess it was 64. I'm at my cousin's house on, on the front lawn and she's talking to her friend down the street, like three houses. They're on their princess phone, on their canopy beds, chatting about I don't know what. When all of a sudden they start screaming about something, my cousin comes running out of the house. Her friend comes running up the street. They're both wearing poodle skirts with their sweaters on backwards, you know, because that was the style. And the bobby socks and the white soles, you know, the 50s. And they start screaming, the Beatles are here, the Beatles. And I thought, what the hell is a Beatle? And then it turns out that they didn't care for the Beatles because they still like Dick and Dee Dee. But I wanted more. So when the Beatles first came, the album my stepfather bought me was Rubber Soul. One of their first. And again, it goes back to the ballad thing for me. But they were singing words that I could understand, you know, and stories. And there was just something different. And then almost within a minute's time, they switched into their, you know, let's smoke pot and have go ruse and all that other stuff. And that's when I became of age, really, with, you know, my generation's music was the English wave that came on over. And the Beatles' rubber soul was contemplative in a way that contemplative that I hadn't experienced before from any of the 1950s stuff. Well, let's take a listen to I've Just Seen a Face by the Beatles from the record Rubber Soul. I've just seen a face I can't forget the time or place where we just met. She's just a girl for me and I want all the world to see we've met. Falling, yes I'm falling, and she keeps calling me back again. And that was I've Just Seen a Face by the Beatles from the album Rubber Soul. And that was the album that L. Frank chose as the first record that really shaped who she is and had a major impact. And how old were you? Hmm. Uh, well, it was 64. I was born in 52, so I was just a kid. I was a kid too young for what I was doing, but too young chronologically, but I was so ready for the 60s. And what about the record? Like, what Um, is it that feels particularly special to you about that album? It's not even that the songs were that much different, even though they they were. They they seemed more personal. It's that I could feel the whole album, and especially I've Just Seen a Face, is almost intangible, but I could feel the clean break between the 1950s music and now the 1960s music. The 50s were hanging along like the first concert I ever went to was Dick and Dee Dee and Jackie DeShannon who sang what the world needs now is love sweet love but Dick and Dee Dee were still back in the days your parents would go dancing with you so there were things lingering and there was an overlap the Beatles they just I don't know how to say that they vibed differently but Mm. they did the vibration was just different and then we moved into an era of talking about vibration immediately from an era that was the 50s were not my happy place. <laughs> you know, there was too much cigarette smoking and whatever. I don't think they were many people's happy place. <laughs> <laughs> For me, it represented the shift mm. in not only music, but in politics and how to carry out my obligations. Because even though I didn't know what tribe I was, I still know what my mandate was. So how am I going to carry out that mandate 
and I felt that there was more opportunity than the 50s vibe. It's like a line in the sand mm -hmm. in a way. And also, that, as you said, the 50s, that period of music, you'd be sharing that with your parents, you know, whereas the Beatles probably felt like your music. Right. So it was a generational cut. When I look at music from several generations back, it was quite often shared with parents and kids. There were those that said, no, this rock and roll is going to kill people, you know, in the 50s. But there were a lot of people who actually liked the music and embraced it of all ages. But when the Beatles came along and the music revolution of the 60s, there was a greater divide in who listened to what. And that represents a lot more than music. That's philosophy, spiritual outlook, environmental outlook. It's a whole philosophical shift, really, and an opening And willing up. to look at that. Rather than just being in love with some girl that you'll never have under the moonlight, the lamplight, they became more, all those things you mentioned. When did you first hear about Carita Kent and what did her teachings and spirit open up for you? I heard about her, I think it was about 67 and then a little bit in 68. I graduated high school in 70, but we had an art teacher who she was ready for the movement, you know, the whole 60s movement. And while she didn't overtly try to influence us when we needed help, that's the help and direction she led us. One of my dearest friends, I'm not even sure, I think it was COVID who just passed away, but she was having some real difficulties. And when she graduated, she had asked for help from this one instructor and she suggested um, Immaculate Heart. So I went up and visited my friend several times and I was just kind of in awe of the place. And we'd have parties in the dorms where the nuns lived and we'd wreak havoc in there and make the fire department come and get us out of the elevators because <laughs> we'd jump up and down in them, you know, just to annoy the nuns. You know, and then I saw her work around, but it wasn't until years later, 71 or two, well, that's not that many years later, I realized that what I really liked while I was going to many JCs was silk screening. The reason I liked silk screening in the beginning was because art teachers were stealing my artwork. And I thought if I made silk screens, they could steal some and I could have some. So, what do you um, mean they were stealing your artwork? Yeah, they go, oh no, it broke in a kill, and then you'd find it for sale somewhere. Oh you my know, that God. Kind of thing. No, that's yeah. crazy. Yeah. So I thought, well, silk screening. And I really liked the way that Marna, that's my friend who passed, I liked the way that she, I always loved the way her brain worked anyway. But the way that she was thinking because of Immaculate Heart, because of what she was learning and had learned there, it was influencing me from a distance. I kind of admired that. So when I thought of silk screening, I knew that I really wanted to do that. Then I just applied to Immaculate Heart and they weren't going to let me at first, but I had to write letters and they accepted me. And how long were you there for? Oh, it was a short time, maybe a year. It was a very short time. A very short time for a time that impacted the entire rest of my life. That's the moment I call that my renaissance moment was at Immaculate Heart because I came from just down the hill from there, you know, a few miles away over where I was raised around. And suddenly I'm transported to a place that I wasn't sure if I belonged there because my very first class was with Faith Wilding, whom I love dearly and want to reconnect with. Her and Judy Chicago and another woman started the feminist art movement, really made it happen in the United States. And so Faith is my teacher, and I didn't know anything about this. She's just my teacher. But she was just so tremendous. She's going to show us slides and tell us who she is a little bit so we can continue with class. So she puts on the first slide and and it's her, and she's dressed in a leotard thing, you know, just tights, full on. And she has a huge phallus tied to the front of her, right? I mean, by huge, I mean like three, four feet, right, long. And my first little, you know, Hispanic-y Indian brain went, oh, you know, 
Oh, okay. And I thought, what does this have to do with art? And then the very next slide, she's still in the photo, but there's a friend of hers and dressed the same way, but she has a huge vagina to the front of her. And I really thought, if I got up and left, I wonder who'd notice. <laughs> but I sat to it because I could hear my grandmother calling them, you know, pigs, get out of here. <laughs> you know, cochina, whatever. But I was so intrigued and I was so glad that I stayed because, you know, that just cracked my brain open. And then I would make art very, very small because I'm so insecure about it that I figure small, then the mistakes will also be small. And then Faith, she would get huge pieces of paper and huge paintbrushes and build the class around me because to break me out of things. Faith once smacked me in the head so hard that I should smack it and you could probably show up on your recording. She was teaching us how to watercolor and I loved it. The idea of a loaded brush, a semi-loaded brush, you know, rolling, twirling, squishing, blowing, you know, just, oh my God, this is so much fun. And I'm really into it. And I knew she was back there. You know, she's going behind each student and watching. So she comes behind me and I ignored her and I'm working and I hear her and she says, oh, you paint like Georgia O'Keeffe. And I said, who? Oh, man. She smacked the heck out of my head. My head almost poked my eye out on my paintbrush, you know? And then she walked off. So I thought, well, I guess I better find out. <laughs> but that's so much cooler that you didn't know because, you know, you're just doing it. You're doing your thing, you know, rather yeah. <laughs> rather than trying to emulate someone. So did it open yeah. up, like, also other mediums and um, modes of expression? Did it feel like it just opened everything up for you? Oh, everything, everything, because I had never watercolored. I had never, my first nude model, I'm late for class and I come running in and, and I stop and there's, you know, she must be 112 years old, right? That threw me. But then I was so into it because I always tell people I cannot draw. Well, what I can draw in 10 minutes. I mean, in two hours, others can draw in five to 10 minutes. So I can, I'm just slow. So it gave me confidence in this and that, you know, we had sculpture and we had this. And I found out that, hey, I have a brain for this stuff, like that spatial thing. You know, first day of one class, instructor walks in, hands us a huge sheets of paper, says, real stiff paper, says, make a box. Okay, I love making boxes. Then he comes back and he says, now draw your hand holding the box, you know. And so I loved the the torturous assignments, the 400 eyes kind of thing or whatever. And I love that these statues of Mary were all over and we would place flowers in her hands, you know, and without it being Catholic, it was just reverence, mm. you know. And I loved that I was a feminist minor. I didn't even know what feminism was. So that opened up everything. I learned me and another person, somehow we became the ones that, you know, in classes, people would look at our stuff. They'd go to our stuff first. I'd always go to her stuff first. She'd always come to mine because she she could do what I so much wanted to. And apparently I did what she so much wanted to. So we had this relationship with the other students, you know, and, and it was nothing but thinking and thinking and thinking and thinking in ways that nobody ever asked me to think that hard. And just pushing those limitations, it sounds like, and being comfortable in the paradoxes. Like, I feel as if truth lives in the paradoxes, you know, so it's like having something be simultaneously joyful and an expression of joy but also you know saying something and challenging and pushing your buttons and even just getting right. a, a sense of Carita it felt like that was very much her spirit so it really makes sense to me that 
you know, after a bit of that that you're getting from the Beatles, that opening, you then yes. get this full wallop of it with <laughs> the Immaculate yes. Heart. Yes. Some of the people from the Corita Center, they were interviewing me. And just when I knew we were out of time, I told them that, oh, too bad we don't have enough time or I tell you how I made out with a boy in Sister Corita Kent's bedroom. And they were begging me to tell them. I said, no, we've run out of time. <laughs> <laughs> But I did make out with a boy in Sister Karina Kent's bedroom. <laughs> oh, you were doing it all. Well, he started it. And he started it in front of everybody. So, you know. <laughs> Who was this boy? <laughs> we were in class and there were about eight of us. And we sat outside. We were in an oval. And I realized that this man at the end, this young man, he was tall and he was Russian. He was tall and had black hair and piercing blue eyes, piercing. You know, he looked like one of those tall guards that the czars used to use, right? He was just intriguingly beautiful. And meanwhile, we're talking about art, the class is on, and he hasn't said a word. He's just staring at me at the other end. Finally, he says to me, and it turned into a, like a tennis match conversation with the rest of the class. He looks at me and he finally says, how would you like to go into the bushes and be uninhibited with me? And so everyone's head turns at me, you know, and I thought, oh. and I said, now? And he says, well, maybe later. I said, okay, let's, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, it turns out he lived in Sister Corita Kent's room. I barely remember anything about him in that room or anything because she painted all over the walls. Oh, you just wanted and to so look at the art. <laughs> I was just into the walls. <laughs> But then afterwards, to top off a wonderful evening of wall watching, we went down the hill to a Thai restaurant. There were two other customers in the back, and one was obviously quite intoxicated and having a very good time. And halfway through my meal, that person started throwing Thai noodles at the back of my head. And so it turned around and to top the day off, it turns out it was Marsha, Marsha, Marsha from the original Brady Bunch because she also likes girls. And she was trying to pick me up by throwing Thai noodles at the wow. back of my head. <laughs> So it was a, a worldwide day of events. <laughs> you were you were hot that day, Al. Everyone wanted to. Just that you. day, yeah. After that, yeah. when did Coyote first show up, and why? Oh. Why do you feel he's such a great teacher? It's funny because actually one of my earliest memories of a book was my dad reading Coyote stories of Navajo people to me. Yeah. Um, Coyote just showed up. I have no idea where or how or why. Some Indians, when I first started drawing, yelled at me, who gave you permission to draw Coyote? So I just told them, well, Coyote, I guess, you know. <laughs> Coyote just started showing up and doing things that Coyote wanted to do. And I had very, very little to do with it. Like when I finished drawing Coyote, I have a five-segment line of squares. And in the first square, Coyote is... <laughs> blowing a raspberry with his tongue. In the second one, he's the same thing. In the middle, he's taking a breath. In the third and then the fourth, you know, the last ones, he's also back to the raspberry because Coyote refused to be drawn anymore. <laughs> so that's how Coyote stopped being drawn. Wow. I have no idea how Coyote came around. Coyote just did. How long was he happy to be drawn for? Oh, good. 10, 15, almost 20 years. Coyote showing up a little bit. Wasn't Coyote also very large? You know, you talk about doing art tiny, so then the mistakes were right. tiny. But you were part of this wonderful Tongvaland billboard project 
um, yeah. which is, you know, the opposite of tiny. And wasn't Coyote in your art for that? Yeah. My cousin, Kara Romero, who's a brilliant photographer, she had an art project in my homelands and said, that's not right. So she included artists from my homelands and made it right. She chose a painting I did. I did a series and they're really all called Coyote Ops out of the choir. <laughs> they're part of that series where Coyote realizes that one can actually walk away from Catholicism. So that's Coyote walking away from the church. That one is about Coyote drops his goblet on the ground. <laughs> it's amazing. It's an incredibly powerful image. And because of that sense of art, hopefully addressing this gross invisibility, did you feel that having it so large and so visible was in some ways a powerful statement? It was a powerful statement to us indigenous and our allies, but I really don't think that anyone else paid any attention. I think I saw it in one native publication art thing, but otherwise the art world didn't say a word about any of those billboards and there was nothing. There was absolutely nothing. But the indigenous people felt very proud. Well, and it was documented at the time. Sure. I often also feel like the best stuff of this world doesn't always get appreciated at the time. But how symbolic in a way that you have such a huge billboard campaign, you know, around this city and everyone ignores it. Yeah, that's that's what it is. Yeah, they can't recognize us. You know, when we're talking about art and that need for art to address invisibility, is it also because actually there are very few tangible artifacts and touch points left of your culture that you actually mm -hmm. have to remake them? Correct. And what is left are overseas in museums and are difficult to get to otherwise. And then we just don't have any imagery because, you know, a lot of our things were made on wood or on other pieces that don't hang around. So making art without icons from a, a culture, I found to be a bit daunting. So then I just started making art about that fact, that this is what we've got. Or a little painting I have here at home, it's coyotes selling maps to the stars. Because in many native and indigenous cultures, coyote often has um, something to do where the stars are placed. So I have this coyote selling maps to the stars along the side of the street. And in the background is the Hollywoodland Hills sign on the street where coyote's standing. You know, it's there's a gutter and a grate and a red Solo cup and a Cheeto and some barf and some other, you know, stuff. Because it's a take on, in Hollywood, it's selling maps to the stars' homes. And so I had to make art about my place and how I feel about it and the juxtaposition of history and then, but, you know, with only contemporary imagery. When also, like, tell us about making basketry in the canoe building. Mm -hmm. and oh, that's different. Yeah. Yeah. And the first stone bowl and literally these artifacts and these ways of creating that you're reviving and keeping alive as you know, we start losing those physical touch points and the wisdom associated with them. Absolutely. Yeah, about 1991 or so, along with other people, I helped make the first steamed, glued, sewn together plank canoe that we would use to go out to the islands. And uh, since then, I've made a second and she's gone on four tribal canoe journeys up in Washington state. And I'm making a third, fourth and fifth canoe in those almost now 300 years because I've always wanted to. And then a young person said, Said, why can't we? So I said, well, we can. So we did. I made the first stone bull by someone in my tribe in 200 years because I saw in a museum we made stone bulls and I thought, well, who does now? And they said, no one. So, okay, so I can do that, which is then taking me to museums. Well, I wish I was taken. 
I've had to like scrounge for money to go to museums in Europe to photograph and see the objects taken from our land, stone and bone art artifacts. So I've been hit and chased by neo-Nazis in Paris just trying to see my things so that we can bring them home to our people in a different way so that we can see who we are. You know, but for me, touching these things, oh gosh, the visions and the voices that I hear and things that I learn are overwhelming. Didn't you say that actually with the first stone bowl, you didn't know what you were doing, but the stone mm-hmm. had a memory of being a bowl and you dreamt it and there it was. Absolutely. Because I had this big square thing and had not a clue as to how to make it round. It was big and daunting and good thing the Haida Indians helped me with that. But all of these have been learning and hoping that somebody else picks it up because that bowl, I dreamt that bowl finished and that's the only piece of art that's ever happened. And then while I was working on it, I knew that the ancestors were thrilled. I could feel it. That's wonderful, Al. And I bet like making, physically making, whether it's the canoe or baskets or the bowl, you must mm-hmm. learn something about your history and your ancestors um, that you could never get from a book or another source of information. Absolutely. When I was first learning to weave uh, basketry, I sat outside my brother's condo. It's all closed in. It's across from Disneyland, also in my homelands. And I took off all my clothes to get nice and toasty brown. And 15 minutes into weaving, I heard my brother had company. I went in, got dressed, went in. And nope, no company. I went out 15 minutes into weaving again. I heard I went back in. He goes, get out of here. No company. I went back out the third time when I heard the voices. I just continued weaving because I realized that they were coming from the basket. And my eyes must have been huge because as I'm weaving, I'm listening and I can see there's like four or five, six women. They're sitting around a little stream edge because you got to soak your materials. They're sitting around a little stream edge and they are laughing and laughing. And they're laughing the way women do when they're talking about their men. You know, when their men aren't around and they're laughing. Oh, you know, John, he thinks his is all that. And they like, oh, that raucous laughter. That's hell. Everybody else gets to hear secret things. And I get to hear about, you know, her husband's penis and how wonderful it is. <laughs> but, you know, I did get to hear stuff. And it was transmitted through the basket, through my hands, the motion, the plants, you know, who have memory. Everything that has memory was operating all at once. Amazing. When I went to Paris to work in that collections room, they had no idea why I was there. I speak no French. They speak no English. And I just started crying because when I walked into the collections room, everything there started crying and crying and crying at me and they couldn't hear it. So it was pretty darn emotional. It must feel like, you know, you've gone to visit your friends in a prison or something. Or your grandmother in a box. Yeah. Your grandmother's head in a box, what it feels like. I imagine just the amount of information and things that you're picking up on, which Mm -hmm. um, is already, you know, doesn't necessarily fit into traditional view and then you've got the genocide and the the absolute erasure of all that you know to be true it must be very impossible to reconcile it has its moments where i can feel it i did a for netflix it's called the city of ghosts where episode four and we were doing the recording. I didn't have a script. There were just three women asking me questions. And so it was a really a lovely time. It was, it was really going great. And I say to people all the time that I'm extinct. No problem, you know, whatever. But this woman is quiet. And then she says, how does it feel to be extinct? And I just burst into tears. Every once in a while, I can just, I can just feel it. Mm. Oh, Al, I mean, even preparing for this conversation from my earliest memories as well, because 
You know, when my dad and my mom, we did this road trip, they weren't together, but we came out to Utah and Arizona and Colorado when I was about four. And my memories was of the Navajo and the Hopi peoples and the art and the sense of that history and culture. And I, that's what I thought America was. So I thought America yep. was the greatest place ever. It's a large uh-huh. part of why I'm here because yeah. Of, yeah, yeah. of the oh, energy, yeah. you know, of that. And then you realize like, no, that's not the case. Exactly. Well, that's what the Latvians felt when we were in Latvia for a month, California natives. I feel like all two million, so whatever point, five of them jumped out of the bushes at us to touch us because they said now see Indiani can die because they felt we had survived the greatest force on the world you know United States Army mm. and government which we sort of did we didn't want to break their bubble because if it's kept them alive we don't want to wreck that but yeah something I love about you one of the things I love about you is you don't just talk you do and you do and you do and you keep on doing even if you don't know how to do it And you never feel like your work is done. And I really connect with that because, you know, you feel you're here to be of service. Is that correct? Mm, Correct. Absolutely. Which is funny because I'm a very selfish, lazy person, but service is my number one thing. That's why I even joined the military. Well, that's and that's a whole other story. (laughs) (laughs) What is one thing that you wish you could communicate about your life experience that you wish other people could appreciate? Oh, Maybe a line from Betty Davis. It's going to be a bumpy ride. I don't know. (laughs) I really don't know. The Lakota, again, has some saying something along the lines of um, life is like the breath of a buffalo on a cold morning. You know, it's just this, you see it and then it's gone. I don't know. Everybody doing their best. For me, the answer is just to follow mandates of creators. And then everything else is just um, holding on to the the tail of the horse that's running. Say that again, the breath of the... Life is like the breath of a buffalo on a on a winter morning. That's beautiful. Yeah, it is. Yeah, you know, there's Lakota. That says it all. <laughs> and on that beautiful note, what is the music you would like to send into space? I think I put satisfaction by the, the stones. Their sound, their vibe feels like it comes from several continents. So it's it's like it holds a lot of the, the love of life that humans have, you know, or the invincibility or something in their sound, just the totality of that song. I hear pieces of it from around the world. To me, it's a universal song. And then the words are just pretty cool. Okay, perfect. So we're going to take a listen to Satisfaction by The Stones. And that was Satisfaction by the Rolling Stones. And that was the music that L. Frank would send into space because you feel like it's a a, a universal message. It's a universal vibe. Vibe. Okay. I feel like that song is like a song about the ego, as in like, I think it's the best description in terms of lyrically of our human ego and how we can never get enough, you know, we can never be satiated and it's always, you know, more. And and so I love that you send that into space because it's like, yeah, that's a pretty, in addition to the vibe, which I know is, is another thing, but it's like the words so sum up the human egoic experience. Right. 
I mean, here we are sending it into space because I can't get any satisfaction. <laughs> yeah. Now we're in space. And how do you feel about the state of our Mother Earth right now? Oh, yeah. She's going through a, a change of life. And um, we've kind of forced it by being very unruly children. And she's going to survive it. She's going to be just fine. She's not happy right now, but she's going to be fine. We're not so fine, but she's going to be fine. <laughs> if you could make human beings see one thing, what would it be? To not kill the ocean. They care just for the ocean. Mm. even. That involves so many things that, for me, caring for the ocean goes along with the statement of think globally, act locally. Because I do this thing where I tell people to plant more whales because, you know, they plant trees for carbon offset. Well, somehow scientifically, one whale is worth 1,000 planted trees. So if I were to say something, you know, and the kids, when they, they go, well, how do you plant a whale? Well, how do you plant a whale? How can you plant a whale? What do whales need? And everybody comes up with a different idea. And if we all take those ideas, we could plant more whales. And that's going to be a show of yours, an exhibition. Oh, I'd like to make a whale show. you got to, I can already feel it. Yeah, I've got two or three thoughts. Yep. What is it that you treasure most about life on Earth? Oh. oh, it's kind of hard between a baby's first smile or a kindergartner's first day at school. The baby smile, that's what I treasure most in the world. And this may be impossible to answer, but why do you think human senses have got so shut down over time? A lot of things now are by greed and want and coveting. And when you're saying me, 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 my, 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 I'm being left out, I'm being left out, mine, 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 you can't hear what you do have. It's like that rule of Greta Kent's don't analyze and create in the same moment. And that's kind of what we're doing. We want this, but we're doing it in such agitated ways that there's no way you can get that. You have to do one or the other. We think a great deal more of civilization than it deserves. I refuse to change my language anymore, and I refuse to become more civilized because I see what civilization has done, and I refuse to be more civilized. Not a good thing to be. There's a wonderful film called The Enigma of Caspar Hauser by Herzog, which is exactly to that tune about how civilization, civilizing of a human being is the antithesis. <laughs> so Yeah, I got into it over language because I said, where you stand, I wrote it on something and they go, you can't use the word stand because some people can't stand. Well, the fact that now we only have one word usage for one word and that they've cut off all form of communication and you want me to change language again, shift it to this social justice language and it's taken me further away because what I teach with language is language is worldview. Now you want me to take me even further from native language into this universal, you know, sterilized kind of language. I said, read a book, read Handicapper General. And that's where we're headed and it's, it's really unhealthy for humans. What is the song that you would have play at your memorial? Oh, yeah. That's Bob Seeker. Here I go again. Or sometimes they call it Turn the Page. So let's take a listen to Turn the Page by Bob Seeker. Most times you can't hear him talk. Other times you can't. All the same old cliches. Is that a woman or a man? And you always seem outnumbered. You don't dare make a stand. And that was Turn the Page by Bob Seger. That was the music that Elle would have play at her memorial. And why? Why, Elle Frank? Well, it wouldn't be for other people to go, oh, that's really Elle Frank. It'd be <laughs> because quite often I'm Elle Frank. And at home, I'm just me. But 
um, L. Frank, in order to do the things that I need to do for my peoples, in order to serve them, I have to be L. Frank. And L. Frank is always on, always on a stage, always going somewhere, always doing something. People are always staring at you and people are always judging you. And, and I don't care that they are. It's just exhausting. It's just exhausting. And people don't let you become human. And, you know, and I feel like, oh, you're whiny because you have a really wonderful life. Okay, I do. But those things are also true mm. that people seldom see me as a human being. And it's a stage thing. There I am. There I go. And so this is for me, not people standing around saying, oh, Frank said not to cry. I would never say that. <laughs> you were also turning that page from a very young age, literally. So, you know, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And this is a new turning of a page, you know, turn the page. Here we go. How do you feel about death? Um, I find it the weirdest thing on earth because I don't accept change and other things very easily. Not that I accept death, but I totally accept death. Somehow there's a calmness that this is death, but the death isn't, oh no, they're dead and there are no spirits and there's no this. No, I understand that we are comprised of mainly stardust. I have seen the attributes of stardust and there's never an end to stardust. Mm. It comes and it grows and it blows up and it does this and it does that. So if we are that, and I feel that we are by our cosmologies, that we are star people, then we just have another adventure. And my puny brain, when I'm afraid of death, says, oh, no, I don't want another adventure. What if I don't like it? What if I can't come home? So once your puny brain is over it, then there's nothing but spectacular, spectacular. Oh, spectacular, spectacular. I love that. And yes, I agree. You know, we're just going home. Well, and we'll go home, yeah. we'll have a sleep, and maybe we'll come and hang out on this weird, beautiful earth again. Um, what do you feel life is about? Oh, again, it ties into my mandate. Life is about protecting the place that creator said to protect. So for me, life is about learning the language that the land knows. For me, life is understanding the water that the land knows, that the only way I can protect it is to know it. So for me, life is about trying to fulfill by knowing. Beautiful. Al, I feel like everything you say is beautiful. I call them Tiny Tim statements. They're always at the end. God bless us, everyone. <laughs> no, but I'm, I'm not someone that can say it if I don't mean it. You are a font of wisdom and wonder and magic. And what would be the record that you'd pass on to the next generation and why? Blackbird by the Beatles, which was actually written about the, the four little girls who were killed in the bombing in the South back in the, you know, I think it was 50s still. To me, it's the poignancy of humanity, mm. that song, the beautiful poignancy of humanity. There's the atrocity in that song, and then there's the holding of the victims and the people and the times in that song. That really affected me seeing black people shot with fire hoses and German shepherds tearing at them. And I was raised, like I say, in this kind of Nazi household, so I know what all that felt like. And I just couldn't bear to see it, but there it was on TV every day. It was a good song to connect with the black community and say that we absolutely understand. It's like the, the moment where something is going to happen or has happened that we haven't really taken a breath about yet. That's Blackbird for me. And how do you feel about the notion of your legacy? 
Yeah, I, lately I actually have thought about that, I guess, because, you know, you get to 70, you think, oh, I guess I better think about that. Mostly because people keep bringing it up to me. Like people keep saying, well, you have a body of work, Al Frank. You know, so people keep saying things, oh, and somebody needs to catalog your stuff and this needs to happen and all of this. So I don't think I have to think anything about it because I haven't really thought anything about it so far. It seems to be rolling right along. <laughs> cool. <laughs> it's doing its own thing. You don't need to think yeah, about hey, it. Yeah, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I I can only handle so much. (laughs) What is the thread that connects all of your orange juice for the air choices? Yeah, you know, I was looking at that, looking at my list. I'm looking at it now. I think it's just the story that each tells. The story is all the same. That if I close my eyes, I can get little pictures of each one of them real quickly. You know, even the stage one of Here I Go. I think it's just the many ways of expressing the beauty, the poignancy, the joys of life. Mm. It's nice that the Beatles made the list twice because they did make a very big impression. And thinking about art today, and I just want to say that your art goes into science and technology, and and that's something we really connected on as well. What do you think we've gained and what do you think we've lost in terms of now and past times, I will just say? We've kind of lost the ability to do much beauty with little. I love that. I really experienced that in when I was in Latvia and I went to a museum there and the art that was made in that museum was some of the most glorious didn't matter if it was a weaving it's the finest weaving I've ever seen or if it was metal I'd never seen someone do that with metal and it turns out that they had barely any tools and barely any supplies you know in black market and don't get caught and all this oppression with no help and great hindrance and yet they were the finest things the finest art I've ever seen came out of They said, we're going to take you to an occupation museum. It is not about work. You know, it was about German and Soviet occupation and occupying their country. But then it seems that in Siberia, with nothing, they cared for each other with art. There was a man who was a classical pianist. I don't know his name. And he had been sent to Siberia. And so somebody found little pieces of wood and made him, I think it's called an octave, a little piano that didn't make sound, but his hands could still play it. Uh, scraps of wood in Siberia, you know, and another made another piece that was art for somebody else just to keep them alive. And so it's like having a pink Hawkeye brownie. You can't take a good photo with that. You just can't take a good photo. I bet you did. I still have some. I'll show you. (laughs) Please do. (laughs) What is it that you hope to leave behind with all the work that you've done and the work that you're continuing to do? I just hope to leave behind that I think that's rule number seven, that you must work. And that's what I would leave behind in a succinct sentence. I think it's seven. Do the work. Everybody's jealous of this or wants that. Do the work. There you go. That's it. Well, Al, you have and are doing the work. So um, thank you for being with us today. This was beyond a pleasure. And now we're going to end with Blackbird by the Beatles from the White Album as the music that Elle would pass on to the next generation. And Elle, thank you once again. Thank you very much. Blackbird singing in the dead of night Take these broken wings and learn to fly All your life You were only waiting for this moment to arrive 